My name is Chuck Garriott, and as Jeff has graciously shared, I'm the Executive Director for Ministry to State, and Debbie, my wife, uh, by the way, this is, um, we've passed year 46, so we give God praise for 46 years of marriage, and uh, you're supposed to say, oh, you don't look that old, thank you. That means, though, that for her, she's had to endure quite a lot. I mean, that's, that's why you're clapping. You're thinking, wow, you know, that's amazing that she would. Anyway, I, uh, I want you to know how much you as a congregation uh, mean to us. You, this is actually, I think, my fourth time that I, you've allowed me to visit and to uh, talk about the ministry. You have supported us with your prayers and your finances for a long time. And uh, that means a lot. It means a lot to have that kind of longevity and for people to stand uh, behind you during uh, the good and the bad and the, the times where it's really exciting and maybe the times where it's not so exciting. So thank you so much for your kindness to Debbie and myself. Uh, as you understand from maybe the Sunday School Hour, if you were with us, that we've been involved in the ministry since 2003. And that, uh, that really is significant for Debbie and I, that we've seen God do a lot of things in those years. And over that period of time, one of the things that really haunts me, I'll, I'll use that term hopefully in a positive way, is that we are there not for the purpose of, of the political uh, side or the government side of D.C. In other words, we're not there to change policies or influence policies. We're not, we're not there to be really part of the government. We are there for the purpose of the gospel. That's why we're there, that sole purpose. How can we, the question that I have to answer each day is how can we, within this ministry, impact those people who live here in Washington, who have been elected, who serve the elected, how can we impact them with the gospel. And over the course of the 17 years, I've been involved in many different Bible studies, some of which will include members, sometimes their chiefs of staff, sometimes even people down to interns. Sometimes it might be people who are part of the administration or even uh, might be cabinet members. No, I've never had any personal involvement with any of the presidents. So we're in our third administration. So the Bush years, the Obama years, and now President Trump years. But all those years, the question is, how can we impact the people with gov and government with the gospel? And so one expression that I wanted to leave before uh, we come to our end, and we don't have any plans to leave anytime soon, but I wanted to have a written expression of what that gospel would look like. And so out of all that concern and prayer and time came the book Love and Power, glimpses of the gospel for those addicted to self. Now, to a great extent, I wrote it for me, okay? Because I know how narcissistic I am and how self-centered I can be, and so I know when I'm around other people who suffer from the same disease. And so I... So over the course of this past year, I've spent a lot of time uh, uh, teaching on the book uh, there in Washington, D.C., and, and having opportunities like this. But the basis of the book, Love and Power, Glimpses of the Gospel for Those Addicted to Self, is Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 17, 
And I would like to read that to you this morning. You'll find it in your bulletin. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees. Before him, good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come and follow me. And at this the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Will you please pray with me? Father, this is your word. We come before you humbly knowing that we are rich, we are wealthy, certainly in the eyes of the world. And even though maybe our assets may differ, we have so much. So we ask that this morning as we look at this passage that you would work within our hearts and our lives by your Holy Spirit. Show us, show us what it means to experience repentance, true gospel repentance. Show us what it means to follow you in every way, every area of our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So when I read this passage, I'm left with a number of questions. One is, why are we not given his name? This is not a parable. The man has a name. But we're not given the name. We're just simply told that he was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. The other thing that I ask when I read and study this passage is, is it possible that this man may be an example, like a living example, of the older brother in the parable of the lost son. You recall that when, when the younger brother comes back and he is embraced by his father, and like that Rembrandt picture, right, there's the older brother who stands there who eventually hears the, the noise of the party, and when he learns that his brother is being celebrated, He's somewhat like, right? Why is he getting all, all the glory? I know that may sound kind of odd, but I, I wonder if in a way this is a living example of that older brother. I have no basis for that thought except I just wonder, right? That's what you're supposed to do when you read the scriptures and you study. You're supposed to ask questions and dig into it and, and just 
pray about, Lord, what is it that you're teaching me? But really, if you think about the passage, it is a passage fundamentally about the whole question of repentance. Repentance means that you're going in one direction and you change your mind. You have a mind change and now you're going in a different direction. And this rich young man is being instructed to experience repentance. Now, in some ways, that's, that should be really easy. It's not complicated. And if you think about it, the gospel really isn't complicated. Certainly in a place like Washington, D.C., the gospel really isn't complicated, but yet at the same time, it is. It at least appears that way for so many. And I think many in a place like Washington or other state capitals or international capitals, there are so many who are very much like this rich young ruler who need to experience gospel repentance, but often do not. And so what I would like us to look at today is what it looks like to experience this impossible repentance that is referred to in this passage. What does it mean for us today to experience impossible repentance? And there are three things I would like you to consider. First of all, the first point is very easy and you'll all remember it. You'll never have trouble remembering this one first point, and that is the word I, or if you want, me. If we're to understand this gospel impossible repentance, then we need to understand who we are. Now, as I mentioned to you here in the passage, you've got this man who comes to Jesus, and in doing so, he says to Jesus, now listen to, his, listen to what he says initially in verse 17 and following. <laughs> As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? And the bottom line here is that that one word, I, is incredibly large. And for a few minutes, I would like us to try to get a sense of just how large that I is. Now, I don't know each of your stories. I, may, I, I have met some of you. We've talked in the past. I might have a little bit of a sense, but I don't really know who you are. But what I do know is that when I ask the question in terms of Chuck Gary, who is Chuck Gary? I realize that the I or the me is really big. And it's so easy for me to get in the way. I remember that when I was young. Now, by the way, uh, we do think of life in, I call it, three different seasons. Do you know which season you're in? Well, let me help you. Okay, so you've got the, you got the early season. Now, how many of you have ever listened to uh, Frank Sinatra? Are you familiar with the song? Like, um, no, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I did it my way. Now, that's actually very, that's very appropriate. I was thinking of the one that came out, it came out of the 60s. It actually was a song that was for uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, but it didn't go anywhere. And so then someone took it, they, they put it like in D minor, and it was a very good year, right? Right? When I was 17, right? I'm not going to sing it for you. Okay. <laughs> but he said, when I was 17, then he kind of goes on, and then when I was 21, and then 35, right? And so he's speaking about these different seasons in his life. And when he gets to the last part, he says, 
and, and it goes something, I don't remember all the words, but it goes something like, now I'm in the autumn of the year, right? And I'm like fine, or something like wine, fine, or a wine, like from fine old kegs, from the brim to the dregs, it pours sweet and clear, it was a very good year. Do you remember that? Okay, so this rich young ruler, he's in that, what I call that middle season. Chuck Garriott is in the beginning of his final season. Now, I remember, I remember what it was like in that middle season, right? That is a glorious time. You're healthy. You got everything before you. Um, I met Debbie in high school, so I started, I kind of, I kind of, melted my first season or my early season with my middle season and we were married by the middle of college and we uh, believed God was calling us into ministry so immediately I didn't even go to my my undergraduate graduation we went out to St. Louis and I entered Covenant Seminary and uh, within somehow by the by God's grace and miracles like many miracles I graduated within three years and when I graduated, now this will sound very self-promotion, but I need to do it so you understand. When I graduated, we had, we had bought our first home and sold it. We left seminary with enough money from the three years in seminary to put down 50% on the house that we started ministry with. We had we had, I had a, we had a brand new car that was paid for and we had no school debt. Now, let me tell you, you felt pretty good about that three-year experience. You felt like, wow, you know, we, you know, we, we, I mean, financially, forget about seminary, financially, these were golden days, right? And you kind of felt like you could do anything. And, and so, so you had now your, your master of divinity and you were licensed and you got ordained and you, you, you were able to go to your first church and put down 50% on your house and your people like, wow, you know, where's all this coming from, right? You're just like the whole world is in front of you. Now, put that in context of this guy. He is referred to in the scriptures as the rich young ruler. That's, there's no name. There's just simply the rich young ruler, the guy in the middle years, right? When I was 17, when I was 25, when I was 35, and everything is before him. And he's probably wearing Brioni suits. Do you know what Brioni suits are? Well, let me just tell you. Now, those glory days of finances have long gone, right? I mean, I'm 40 years past all that, and so I drive old cars, and, and uh, it's that, that's a whole different story. But ministry will do that. But it's good for you. But the point is, is that in Washington, you've got you've got all kinds of people there, and I happened to be walking by a little boutique men's shop that sold only Brioni suits. And a year ago, I wouldn't have known what, what that meant, but I walked in, and I had on my $150 wool blazer that I just bought. No, no, I'm sorry. No, it was a $200 suit, wool suit. I, it was a suit that I just bought, and I felt pretty good about it. I got it on a good sale. And, uh, but I went in knowing that this was a high dollar place. And so I asked the guy, I said, would you mind just giving me a quick illustration or quick, quick, um, uh, yeah, I need an illustration for a sermon. Quick, I need, I just need a quick lesson on these, you know, these fine clothes. And he went on and told me this is all made in Italy and they're fine men's 
clothing and the wool comes from these exotic places in the world. And, and, uh, and so then he said, well, let, me, let me show you a, a jacket here. And so he pulled one of these nice fine wool blazers uh, uh, off the rack. And he said, uh, this is, you know, and he kind of went through all these details. And I said, so how much are we talking about? Like 500, 1,000, 1,500 maybe? Like, you know, really expensive 2,000? Nope. 7,900, and that's not, and that's maybe a sale, I don't know, or something, but $7,900 for the Brioni jacket. And then I asked, tell me, like a suit? Oh, well, a suit would be 11,000. And I'm thinking, if I bring one of those home to Debbie, I'll definitely be in trouble. (laughs) And then, so then I asked the big question, well, what would be, like, your most expensive suit? And you probably, most of you probably uh, know this because you have some. (laughs) 60,000. $60,000 $60,000 for a suit, one suit. I said, I'll take two. <laughs> okay, all right, so now, I come in here with my Brioni $60,000 suit. Am I not going to be, like, feeling pretty good about my life and about my accomplishments and all those things, right? So when this man, who is now standing, or now kneeling in the dirt in his nice $60,000 Brioni suit, Right, and he's been chauffeured to the place uh, after he got out of his his uh, corporate jet. Right, he's now in in the in the dirt. So when he says to Jesus, "Show me what I must do," right, just show me what I must do. He is saying, in essence, "I just need a little bit of help here to kind of fix this one area of my life." And we're not quite sure of all the things, but he's clearly concerned about spiritual things. But he just needs a little bit of advice. That's all he needs, right? All right, now, we could talk on and on about narcissism and about what really wealthy, wealthy people think about and how exotic everything is like, but let me ask you this basic question because of time, and that is simply this. How does that picture compare with the latter portion of Mark chapter 10? So if you have a New Testament and you go to verse 47, the passage that refers to blind Bartimaeus. He cannot see. And, and he hears that Jesus is coming. And so, does this man say to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, just help me out a little bit with my blindness. No, he says this. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Now that is a very, very different, very, very different mindset. It's not the Google or the YouTube. You know, you go on and you find some help, you know, and you fix your car or the thing in your house or your dishwasher or whatever. No. This is someone who says, I have nothing to offer. Have mercy on me. When was the last time? That was your cry. Uh, less, somewhere, I guess it was back, back in the spring of last year, it was 3 o'clock in the morning, Debbie wakes me up, she says, do you hear that? And as I was waking up, I could hear the cry of a woman. And she was standing next to a man, just across, we live in a row house about two miles north of D.C., so it's a typical D.C. picture. This row house 
Across the street, there's a car, a man bleeding, lying on the street, this woman standing next to him with a little four-year-old boy or so. She's crying at the top of her voice, help. People blocks away told me they heard this lady crying in the middle of the night. We don't know all the details. Debbie goes down and eventually I, I, I try to, uh, I get down as well, but Debbie's able to look at this man and uh, figure out that he's still breathing. And of course, 911 is called. Other people who lived in the apartment across the street are coming out. And, and uh, uh, we, again, we don't know the details. All we know is that this lady gets to the point in her life where she, she's lost. She has nothing to offer she, except simply to cry out for help. Do you see the difference between that posture as opposed to someone in their, again, and it's fine if you want to wear a $60,000 suit, that's, that's your thing, but the difference between wearing the 60000 Brioni, even though you're in the dust, you're in the dirt, and you're, you're acknowledging Jesus' presence and you're referring to him as a good teacher, but you're saying, show me what I must do to inherit eternal life. When was the last time as you looked in your heart as a Christian, and you saw your own sin, your hard-heartedness, maybe bitterness towards somebody, maybe you're struggling in a certain area, there's an addiction, or maybe there's, there's some frustrating sin aspect, or maybe you're lonely, or you're, you're whatever the case may be, and you're crying out to God, help me. I have no, I have no alternative except for you to now take over this part of my life. Secondly, but that, that I needs to be recognized in terms of this impossible repentance. Secondly, there is this issue of blindness. This man, this rich young man, was totally blind. He could not, for example, first of all, he could not see that he was in the presence of God. Jesus brings that out immediately. There's no one good but God alone. And clearly, what Mark is accenting here, this man does not see he's in the presence of the living God. The God who was, who, the incarnate God, the one who was born in a manger, the one who came to die for his sins, the one, the one who rules the universe. He thinks he's in the presence of some popular teacher. Not the same. He doesn't see that. He's blind. He doesn't see his own sin. When Jesus says to him, you know the commandments. And then he goes through the commandments, right? Now, have you noticed that, number one, Jesus doesn't give the commandments in the normal order that you find in Deuteronomy or Exodus, for example. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't see that same order, but it's from the same section of the, of the Decalogue, which means it's from the second, the second half. And the second half deals with our relationships with each other, right? You ought to be able to see this one coming, but the man doesn't. He doesn't see it coming. When Jesus asked him, you know the commandments, he should have just said, yes, I am familiar with them. But he doesn't say that. He says, I've kept them all since I was a boy. Now imagine if after, if, if, as, the, as Rick had introduced us to the, the time of confession this morning, that I stood up and said, oh, by the way, that does not apply to me. I don't need to confess any sin because there is no sin in my life. 
That's synonymous with, with what happened in this man's life. You all would have said, oh no, Jeff, don't let that man in the pulpit. Right? He's crazy. He's, he's deceived. He doesn't, he's so blind about his own sin. Like, really? He's going to stand there and tell us that he's never sinned? You all would know because you know how it works. This man was blind. And then the other thing is he's blind towards the consequence. He, he doesn't see how lost he is. He doesn't see where this is all taking him. And so I think, to, to be honest with you, this whole dynamic of, of impossible repentance has to be not only understood that the eye is so big, the, the, we, you know, and again, we ought to celebrate the things, the good things in our lives and the things that God has done. No question about that. At the same time, it's so easy for us to cross the line. And instead of, instead of being humbled by what God has done, you know, we're kind of, we continue to elevate ourselves and we can do more. And again, if you're wearing, wearing a $60,000 Brioni, you know, I mean, really, who could be against you? Your suit is, is for you, right? It's kind of that thing. <laughs> so I think, I think we need to at least pause here and say a couple things quickly because we're coming to the end of the sermon. I know my time is up. Uh, that number one, there needs to be the expectation in the world in which we live that they are blind, that they are all wearing the, the 60,000 Briones, and they think much of themselves, really. That's the world, because they cannot see. They really can't see their true condition. This man could not see his true condition. Secondly, that means that we ought to have a heart of mercy for the people around us, for our neighbors, those at work, those within our community and city and and state, and within the country, and those who, who are in places like Washington, when we see things, when we hear what they believe, etc., we ought to say, no, that's, that makes perfect sense, because they're wearing these Brioni suits, and they can't think anything else, except, except what it means to live in that world. They are blind. And therefore, as we, as we think about it, we ought to be all the more oriented towards praying for them, that God would open up their eyes, that they would be able to see. Thirdly, thirdly, not only do we see the eye in terms of this impossible repentance and see the blindness, but thirdly, we see the love of Christ. So in verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come and follow me. When you sell that Brioni and you sell everything else, the wonderful car, the jets, you know, we've got, we've got maybe four people in the country now that have a net, or their companies have a net worth of a trillion dollars, right? That's, a, that's more than I make in a year. And <laughs> that's a lot of money. Those, those friends... So for them to sell everything that they have, to give to, and then, but notice that Jesus doesn't just simply say, get rid of it, you know, liquidate your assets and, and just do something with it. He says, give it to the poor. Think differently. Think about people that maybe you wouldn't normally think about. This is, by the way, not in the last 20 or 30 years. This is, this is back, right, 2,000 years ago. Give the proceeds to people who need it. And then he says, when you've liquidated everything, then come and follow me. And you'll have treasures in heaven. You'll understand a different definition of wealth. And of course, the man 
did it, right? He said, that's great. Um, I'll, I'll send the email and liquidate everything and I'm, I'm yours. No, he leaves sad because he had great wealth, which I do believe is an indication that there is something happening. He didn't just leave mad. He could have said, oh, you know, don't you see I'm wearing my Brioni? Like, what are we talking about here? I can give to the poor. I don't have to sell everything to give to the poor. I can set up all kinds of trust and organizations and ministries, and I've got a big foundation. I can take care of the poor. But don't, I mean, but let's not exhaust, you know, everything, right? And by the way, I can really make your ministry much better. I mean, I can really, I can up it a lot. And uh, you'll be, you can do things you've never even thought about. I mean, this guy could have gone in all kinds of directions with that, but he doesn't. He leaves sad because he had a lot of Brionis. He had a great wealth. But it says that Jesus loved him. And it's interesting to me, and I think we need to note it, that 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 means, according to this passage, that Jesus was not going to allow him to entertain anymore that he was okay. Something has to change. It has to change. You need to see the fact that the first commandments dealing with idolatry, you're, you're so engulfed, you cannot see it. But your possessions and your, your positions and your, your, everything you have is your idol. That's your guy. You cannot continue in this line of idolatry when I'm, going to, I'm, I'm in this, this deal. I'm, I'm over here. I'm, if you're going to follow me, we're going in this direction. The idolatry isn't going to work. Jesus does never, never allows us just to sit easily within our own idolatry and the things that are feeding us and the things that are, are giving us life that really are not giving us life, but just really giving us a little glimpse of something. Only Jesus can do it. And the point is that Jesus wants him to know the truth, but more so, Jesus wants him to understand the real definition of the word I, and it's not the rich young ruler's eye, it's the Jesus eye, the Jesus me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. That's the eye that the man needs, and that's the eye that I need and that you need. And so my prayer is, is that there will be in our lives continual gospel repentance, this impossible repentance, not because of what we can do or what we would like to offer, but because we go to God totally exhausted, crying for help in the middle of the night, knowing that only his spirit can work within us and show us our sin, help us see our blindness, but help us more so to see the glory of what it means to be embraced by the love of our Savior. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this morning together. Thank you for the ministry of Spruce Creek, for Jeff and the elders and the women and other men in this church who do so much. I pray that you would use them for your glory in this community and beyond as you have been. In Jesus' name, amen.